Well, <clears throat> thank you, Adam and team, for leading us in worship this morning. And um, I hope that uh, as you celebrated your Thanksgiving this past week, that you were able to come up with at least a few of those 10,000 reasons to bless the Lord. My guess is that we won't fully understand what he has done for us until we are united with him in heaven. And then I would imagine that we'll find a few more than 10,000. Well, for those of you who are visiting with us this morning here at Cow Creek, uh, we're so glad that you are with us this morning. You probably saw uh, the yellow sheet in the bulletin that describes the order of our service here this morning. And so uh, we just want to remind you uh, that here at Cow Creek, we believe in the importance of preaching expositionally through the books of the Bible. And so um, just a few weeks ago, Pastor Jeremy started a series in John. And just a few months ago, Ben Abrahamson and I started working our way through First Samuel. And Ben, we're scheduled to be completed with that by like, what, 2045, <laughs> I think. But though there are times where we work through um, thematic series here, our main diet from the pulpit consists of moving verse by verse, week by week, through a book of the Bible. Not skipping portions of the scripture, but preaching the whole counsel of God's word. Our goal is always to um, have the shape and emphasis of the message be determined by the shape and emphasis of the passage. And that's what I will attempt to do here again this morning. And so, um, because it's been so long uh, since we've been in 1 Samuel, as, as you are joining with me in 1 Samuel, if you want to turn there with me, let me give you just a brief uh, review of, of where we've been before we go. So, um, as you remember, the, the book of Samuel is a historical account of how God um, established kingship in Israel. The primary focus of the of the book is the rise of the house of David. And, more importantly, the author is always pointing towards the offspring of David, who in the future will sit on an eternal throne. In chapter 1, uh, we're introduced to the God-fearing Hannah. She had been childless for many years, and, and we see her cry out to God for a son. And... Um, after a period of time, God graciously grants her the request. And she names her son Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Her son Samuel is, is called by God to minister in the temple in chapter 3. But before he can be an effective judge and priest in Israel, God must work to purify the corrupt priesthood of Israel. And because Samuel is walking in obedience to God, he doesn't necessarily play a major role in the narrative that we're going to be looking at this morning. But if you're in your Bible, if you go ahead and turn back to chapter 2, and we're going to, this is actually where we're going to start this morning. Chapter 2 begins with Hannah praying a prayer. And this prayer introduces some of the most important themes in the book of Samuel. Hannah, drawing upon the character of God, explains how God will be working to raise up and to cast down. Because of his character, 
God behaves in a certain way. He's a holy judge. He's a God of knowledge. And because of this, he's he's also all-powerful. And because of this, he's able to see the hearts of men and women and judge their hearts accurately. And he has the power to raise them up and to cast them down. And as we get through her prayer, the next portion of this chapter 2 deals with the house of Eli. And as our chapter 4, we're going to get to here in just a second, it deals primarily with the house of Eli. It's important to get the context and some of the things that were, were said and prophesied to Eli and to his sons. We, we, we should read them and get them out here right now before we get into chapter 4. So if you're in chapter 2, in verse 12, it says this. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. He would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all Israel who came, all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give me meat for the priest to roast, and he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let him burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sins of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. If you skip that down to verse 29, God sends a message to Eli through a prophet, and he says this, verse 29, this is God speaking to Eli through the prophet, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling, and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord of the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father shall go, I promise that the house of you and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so there there will not be an old man in your house. Then, in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be any old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall, shall not be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this shall come upon you, that your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever." Now, with these two prophecies in mind, or the description in the prophecy, let's go ahead and turn to our passage in 1 Samuel chapter 4. 
And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in a line against Israel, and when the battle was spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were with the ark of the, of the covenant of God. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men, fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very, very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on a seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. When the man came into the city and told the news, all cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? The man hurried and came and told Eli, now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who comes from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how, goes it? how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not, did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Well, the, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we come again to you this morning 
once again to ask that in the pages of your scriptures that you will reveal yourself to us in a new and fresh way. We ask this morning that you open our eyes that we might behold the glory of your word. We ask you that you open our hearts that we might receive your truth and we ask that you will allow our minds to understand what it is your good and your perfect will for our lives. And Father, this morning as we continue to worship, we ask that you work through our weakness and that you build us up through the word for your glory. Amen. Well, I was thinking the other night uh, about my very first trip on an airplane. I don't know if you remember your very first airplane ride. Um, Back in the days, maybe before you were worrying about making sure your bag was over or under 50 pounds or before the hassle of security or being, you know, worry about getting stuck in that dreaded middle seat. But what I want you to think back is the very first time when you were wrapped in anticipation and wonder about getting on a plane for the very first time. About the wonder of of such a large machine, how it would be able to break free from the bounds of terrestrial earth and lift off into the sky in glorious flight. I don't know if you remember strapping in for the first time. I know I remember strapping in, and I remember being distinctly disappointed that it was only a lap belt and not a five-point restraining harness. I remember the acceleration of the plane as and you were being pushed back gently into your seat, the anticipation of the wheels taking off, and then as the nose eases in the air, you soon feel that rush of, of just the wind as the ground leaves you behind. I remember looking out the window, craning my neck to see as you ascended from the earth up into the sky. I remember looking out and seeing the, uh, seeing the, 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 the roads and the, everything gets smaller and smaller. And as the plane continued to its cruising altitude, I realized my first shock as the plane began to nose through what I realized were in fact clouds. My very limited experience with planes, I had only seen planes flying in the blue parts of the sky. I'd never seen them flying in the clouds before, and so it was new to me. And as we passed through the clouds, at first it was just wispy clouds, but then pretty soon they were super aggressive and you couldn't even see the edge of the tip of the airplane wing. After a few minutes, I remember breaking through the clouds and, and we emerged into the brilliant sunlight. As you looked out, you could see a, a blanket of clouds stretching out into the horizon. And you could see the glorious sun there. And as a little kid, I was shocked when I realized that above the clouds, the sun is always shining. It seems that the Christian life is is the same way as well, right? We often are so aware of the clouds that are pressing down on us that we forget that our God is reigning on the throne. We we see the the headlines of the of the newspapers and the and we look around and we see it's almost impossible sometimes to open lift up our eyes and see the glory of God. So many things can obscure the light from reaching our eyes. The Christian life is hard. Even Jesus said that to follow him, one must deny themselves, pick up their cross daily, and follow him. Well, with the struggles and the trials of the Christian life, 
What encourages us to live faithfully even as we struggle through the fear and uncertainty of this world? And this morning I want to propose that it's because the Lord is a righteous judge that we can rely on him to fulfill all of his promises in his own perfect timing. Because the Lord is a righteous judge, we can rely on him to fulfill all of his promises in his own perfect timing. Well, as we keep that in mind, let's, let's turn to our passage and look at our passage. And this morning, our passage is divided neatly into two sections. The first section um, outlines the battle plan, and that's verses 1 through 11. And our second section this morning will be 12 through 22, and that's the response to the outcome of the battle. And so as we look at the the battle plan, in in verses 1 and 2, the author introduces the immediate context of the narrative. The passage begins with the mentioning of the the raising up of Samuel. And chapter 4, though, is dedicated to the decline of the house of Eli. And if you remember uh, from previous weeks, remember that Samuel's prophecy it said that it would cause the ears of all who heard it to tingle. But Samuel himself isn't really part of our passage this morning. And in verse 1, Samuel fades into the background as the Israelites are headed out into battle. They were headed out against the Philistines. Remember, the Philistines were the main source of problems for Israel and are introduced into this narrative for the first time. They're seeking to expand from the coastal sections of Israel into the hill country. And there's a battle. Israel marches out to to meet the Philistines. The battle's a surprising and a stunning defeat for Israel. And they lose a significant number of soldiers in battle. And in verse 3, the people come back into the camp and they ask the most important question, why has the Lord defeated us? Their intuition is right. They recognize that this defeat at the beginning is, is, a, is ordained from the Lord, and they ask the right questions. But instead of beginning to figure out the right answer, they presume that the Lord wants them to be victorious. And so they determine the quickest possible way to victory is the use of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, described in detail in in Exodus chapter 25, was was made of acacia wood. It was was a box um, that was made of um, acacia wood overlaid with pure gold. The Ark was meant to be transported by two gold-covered poles that were inserted into rings on each side of the Ark. And and as you remember, uh, Moses was to place the two tablets of stone that God had given to Moses on Mount Sinai uh, into the ark. These These were the tablets of stone that contained the words spoken by God that formed the foundation for the covenant between the Lord and his people. And this morning, just a reminder that when I use the term Lord, I'm using the term capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, and it refers to God's covenant name, Yahweh. And so the covering, the, 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 
The law was put into the ark, but there was a covering put over the ark. It was called the mercy seat, once again overlaid with pure gold. And on each end, there was a cherub. They were facing towards the middle, and their wings were outstretched, and they covered over the mercy seat. And it was here that the Lord spoke to his people. The ark was described as the footstool of the Lord. And the Lord was described as being enthroned above the cherubim. Now, these Israelites, their decision to grab the ark and take it out into to battle without any expressed directions is an unprecedented breach of faith. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, the Israelites were told that once they, they made it into the promised land, they were to find a secure place for the ark. It was supposed to dwell in a particular place, and the people were to go to the ark to worship the Lord there. It was not intended to be carried all over, uh, all over the country as an emblem of battle or a good luck charm, but it was supposed to be the center of their place of worship. And if the scene already was not ominous enough, the sons of Eli were sent out along with the ark. That they were chosen to escort the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim, is another reminder of the sad state of hypocrisy and blindness of the people of Israel. And in verse 5, we see the immediate result of their decision. As the ark enters into the camp, the whole congregation is ecstatic. They shouted for joy because their deliverance had come. You can imagine the exultant procession led by Hophni and Phinehas. It might have been a thrilling sight to behold. The ark of the Lord was on the move. None of them had ever seen the ark before. Only the priests had, and once a year, and that on the day of atonement. There's no mention of reverence or fear before the ark. They were just excited that their deliverance had come. The jubilation in the camp there, it says, the jubilation was so great that it was heard in the camp of the Philistines, which was two miles away. Now in verse 6, the the narration skips over and and turns to the the Philistine camp and the narrator shifts and the Philistines hear the noise of the rejoicing. They know it's from the Hebrews and they must have heard the noise and they must have sent out spies to figure out what's going on here. And as the spies returned, they learned that it was the Ark of the Covenant that had entered into the camp of the Israelites. And you can see here that their response is threefold. First, you can see that they recognize that this Ark is something that they had never faced before. The Philistines had been beating up on the Israelites for years now, and the, the Israelites had never resorted once to bringing out the Ark of the Covenant. The Philistines know that this is a new thing. They never experienced this before. And it says that they remembered. They remember, who can deliver us from these gods, they say in verse 8, the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Well, they don't really have their facts right, but what they do is know is they do understand, they've heard the stories of the power of this great God. And so what they decide to do is uh, they, they see no other outcome. And so they, 
in verse 9, they say, take courage, men, lest you become slaves. Be men and fight. And so they decide that their best option is to, to man up and go to battle. They have only their freedom to lose, and so they rally together, they drum up their courage, and they head into battle. In, in verses 10 and 11, we see the outcome of the battle. We see that it was a rout. Every man fled to his home. There was a great slaughter. The ark was captured. Hophni and Phineas were killed. Needless to say, the battle doesn't go as either side expected it to. Instead of a triumphant victory with the ark in their lead, the Israelites face one of the, their greatest defeats. And the language of every man fleeing to the home suggests that that complete military discipline had completely unraveled as the soldiers fled. They abandoned their posts in an attempt to save their own lives. A display of weakness and cowardice of epic proportions. And to make matters worse, they, as they fled for their lives, they left the ark of God on the battlefield. The footstool of God was dropped as they ran to save their own lives. Well, as we look through verses 1 through 11, that's the battle, right? But verses 12 through 22, the battle is now reported back in Shiloh. And it's first reported to Eli, and you can see in verses 12 through 18 that anxious Eli has been waiting for the news of the battle, the battle had taken place over 20 miles from, from Shiloh, and the people were waiting for news. There were no embedded reporters, and so they had to wait for someone to bring back news from the field. None more anxious than Eli. And as they waited in the city, you can see, you can almost picture in your mind, a, a runner shows up in the distance, and they see this runner moving slowly towards the city. You can imagine the anticipation, the tension, no doubt was high as the runner gets closer and closer to the city. No doubt spurred by the side of Shiloh, the, the runner increases his pace as he winds his way toward the city. From the walls, it's, it's clear to see that the, the runner's clothes were torn and there's dirt on his head. This detail doesn't describe necessarily someone who's escaping from battle or for that matter, someone who simply hates running, the description is to be understood as a sign of warning, a mourning. And as the runner enters the city, he begins to deliver his message to the people. And the people, re responding to the news, cry out in loud lamentations and wailings. Only adding to the sense of Eli's foreboding, he demands to know what's going on. If you remember, Eli at this point is blind. He cannot see. No one around him either knows or is brave enough to tell Eli what's going on. And so, as the messenger approaches, Eli's heart trembles for the ark of God. His physical sight, mirroring his loss of spiritual sight, Eli formally asks the messenger, how did it go, my son? And upon hearing the invitation, the messenger mercifully keeps his short, uh, story abbreviated with these statements. Israel fled. Israel suffered a great defeat. Your two sons are dead. And the ark of God was captured. Note the progression here. He starts from the, the, 
from a tragedy to an even greater tragedy, and he builds with each successive revelation, culminating in the loss of the ark. When the messenger mentions the ark of God, Eli falls off his seat backwards and dies. While his 40 years as a judge flashed before his eyes, Eli must have realized that it was his leadership that brought Israel to such a place of disobedience. So much so that God removed the physical reminder of his presence in the greatest defeat in Israel's history. But as we know, the, the defeat is actually more than, and greater than Eli realizes. The narrator doesn't include the aftermath of this battle at Aphek, but the archaeological record of this time shows that the, the, the ruins of Shiloh indicate a large-scale destruction of the city that would coincide with the Israelites' defeat at Ebenezer. Most likely after capturing the Ark of God, the Philistines marched to Shiloh, where the house of the Lord was located, and they destroyed Shiloh as well. The psalmist acknowledges this idea in Psalm 78. We see a complete picture of the battle. It says this, verse 60. It says, The Lord forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among men, and delivered his power to captivity. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. God's punishment of Eli, his house, became an illustration and a warning of judgment that will come upon all of those, the house of God, who rob the weak, rob the poor, and the innocent. Lord used the, the Philistines to fulfill his promise to Eli and to his household because they failed to humble himself and walk in the ways of the Lord. The message we see for Eli is clear. It's the Lord's knowledge is perfect. He will deliver a righteous judgment on all, especially those in positions of leadership. He will deliver righteous judgment on those who take his commands lightly. The ruins of Shiloh still stand as evidence and a warning to those who will serve in the house of God. Well, verse 19 through 22, we have another person who receives the bad news of the battle, the faithful wife. And as we look at this final section of the passage, we are introduced to the daughter-in-law of Eli, the wife of Phineas. But as we think about the significance of, of the wife of Phineas, it might be helpful to look back over briefly over the narrative to see the pattern that the narrator has left for us to follow. The elders and Hophni and Phinehas have no reverence for the ark of the Lord, the glory of God. So they use it as a means to achieve success as they face various foes challenging their security. The Philistines, have, they've heard of the ark of the Lord, and though they've heard of the power and the glory, they believe that they can fight against the glory of the Lord. We also have Eli, the judge of Israel, the priest of the Lord. He seems to have once have seen the glory of God, but he fails to display the integrity and moral courage necessary to confront his son's wickedness and to remove them from their positions. 
And it's because of his moral failing and his blatant disregard for the Lord that his family is placed under the just judgment of a righteous God. And then the narrative concludes with an unnamed woman whose life, it seems, was bound up in her love for the glory of God. As the news comes here to the wife of the widow of Phineas, note the order, the ark was captured, her father-in-law and her husband were dead. Her order starts with the revelation of the greatest loss and works its way to the least. But even so, through the compounding of the tragedies, she goes into premature labor. And for this unnamed girl, the wife of Phineas, her life probably didn't work out quite the way that she expected. As a young girl, I would imagine that, that she was um, excited about becoming betrothed to a priest. It might have been a point of great joy for her. Her father-in-law was the high priest. Her brother-in-law served in the house of the Lord as well. It might have been a time of great rejoicing and celebration for her to have the opportunity to serve so close to the house of the Lord. But over time, her initial joy probably started to fade. She might have started to wonder about her husband's faithfulness to her. Might have started with little suspicions to begin with. She might have noticed other people starting to treat her differently. She may have even confronted her husband at some points. She might have asked Eli for help. But Phineas refused to turn from his adultery, and it was widespread known throughout the whole country what he was doing. And so we have this nameless woman who seems to be the collateral damage of the sins of Eli. And she turns to the Lord, the Lord of hosts. She finds her comforts in the Lord. She finds her solace in the one who raises up the poor from the dust, the one who will guard the feet of his faithful ones, the one who remembers the afflictions of his servants, the one who remembers the poor and oppressed, the one who is enthroned above the cherubim. And though it seems as if she's completely alone in this world, she is not. And hearing the news of the loss of the glory of God, she bowed down and she gave birth. This was the traditional method in Israel for birthing in the kneeling position. And following quickly after her birth, the time of her death was upon her, whether from complications from the birth or other means, it does not say. Those attending her, they tried to comfort her. They say, it's a boy. She doesn't listen to them, for her mind was consumed with the departure of the glory of God. The ark of the covenant was to her, it was the thing that led the people into the promised land. The ark contained the covenants, the physical sign of God's blessing. And as they followed his law and kept his command, he would defeat the enemies. He would bless them in all they decided to undertake. The ark of the covenant was the sign that, that he would bless their land and their livestock and their families. He would establish them in the land so that their prosperity would abound. The Lord would open to his people and freely give from his good treasury. There would be peace, there would be security in the land because the Lord of hosts was dwelling in their midst.
But Phineas' widow also reminds us of another important truth. As we think about the loss of the glory of God, as she names her son Ichabod, the glory has departed. For without the ark, where would these people go to be reconciled to God? We must remember that it was Israel's disobedience that led to the glory's departure. And the loss here of God's glory is an echo of Adam's loss in the garden, as Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. And it's a stark reminder of of the human condition, separation from the presence of God. And while the ark here is described as the footstool of God, of the Lord, it's also a picture of the gospel. As you, can, as you remember, humankind is born into sin and with a sin nature, and Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. But if you remember, the ark, in the ark was placed the, the, the Ten Commandments. And as the law was placed inside the ark, we realize that the law can never save anyone. The law and the commandments reveal that no one's righteous and it's impossible to keep the law. Our sin is the barrier separating us from God. But God provides a means of reconciliation. Remember on the mercy seat, he first illustrated this reconciliation with the ark on the Day of Atonement. Remember on the Day of Atonement, it was the day where where the priest would enter into the Holy of Holies with a bowl of blood of of a sacrifice and sprinkle blood on the ark over the law under the cherubim where God sat in thrones. It was through this blood covering over the transgression producing law that the Lord of hosts could dwell with his children to grant reconciliation to his people. But this means of reconciliation once a year, every year, was not meant to be permanent. There had to be a, a better sacrifice because of the continual sin. This, this day of atonement pointed to a need for a greater sacrifice that could atone for sin. And the New Testament unfolds that to us in the coming of the Son of God, the ultimate and final sacrifice. And when Jesus took on an earthly body, he lived a perfect life, obeying every nuance of the law. And then he he took the curse upon himself as he died a death on a cross. He drank the cup of God's wrath down to the bottom. And then Jesus, the great high priest, entered into the throne of heaven, where there the ark sits, to sprinkle his own blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant before the Lord of hosts. And because this sacrifice was once and for all, Jesus then sat down at the right hand of his Father. His atoning work was finished. Well, as we think about this passage, I just want to draw a couple of brief applications here as we conclude. I'll draw two lessons. There are plenty more that we can draw, but let me just draw one from Eli, one from the widow. First lesson we can learn from Eli is this. Because the Lord is a God of knowledge, he is able to weigh the actions of every person. 
Because the Lord is a God of knowledge, he is able to weigh the actions of every person. The loss of the Ark of the Covenant and the destruction of the city of Shiloh can be traced back to the sin and disobedience of Eli. Though Eli was kind to Samuel, kind to Hannah, he failed to remove his wicked sons from their service in the house of the Lord. And the resulting destruction of Shiloh served throughout Israel's history as a consequence of religious hypocrisy. The prophet Jeremiah warns the hypocritical religious leaders by using Shiloh as an example in Jeremiah chapter 7. Crying out against religious hypocrisy, Jeremiah says this on behalf of the Lord, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that is in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people. The warning against sin was very serious. As the glory departed Shiloh, the city was destroyed, and the city remains in ruins. As Jeremiah warned those in Jerusalem, they did not heed his warning, and their temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. If you remember in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus echoes these very words to the the Pharisees there. He says, Is it not written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Instead of listening, these Pharisees plotted and murdered Jesus, and their temple was destroyed by the Romans. The Apostle John in Revelation 2 warns the church Ephesus to return to their first love or their lampstand will be removed. The insight here is is so helpful. It's that a church will cease to exist when it ceases to perform its basic function. These examples show how hypocritical people refuse to honor God and they place themselves instead in the center of worship. Let's look at how Eli illustrates this principle. Eli's function as a priest, his job was to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. And as part of the payments, the priests were to take a portion of the offering. But they were only supposed to take a small portion. And and they were supposed to wait until the fat was burned as an offering to the Lord. That was the pleasing aroma, the burning fat that symbolized God's acceptance of an offering. These offerings were brought to the Lord as out of the abundance of their hearts, out, out of thankfulness to bring honor and glory to God. These people brought their sacrifices to the temple. But Eli's sons didn't wait for the, the, the meat to be burned or sacrifice to be offered. Instead, they, they demanded the first and best portions. They were taking God's share of the sacrifice for themselves. For years, they went on stealing the sacrifices that belonged to God. And as the narrator describes Eli's death, it is with a sense of irony that the narrator suggests that Eli was old and he was heavy. And here we see a physical illustration of where God's glory is. For Eli, in a very real sense, God's glory was wrapped around Eli's belly. I wonder, though, how many of us are 
guilty of the same thing? How many of us are wearing the glory of God that we've taken from him? Well, we might not wear it, but we, we find it in other places as well. Could be parked in our driveway or in storage someplace. But we as humans are quick to make idols out of everything and anything. All of the good gifts that God has given to us. It might be our own children that we're placing ahead of God. But brothers and sisters, it's important. We must be careful to examine our lives and our motives. And if we find that we've been honoring someone or something above God, that we've been stealing God's glory for ourselves, we must, conter- we must turn and confess that sin. And may today be a day where we examine our hearts to see if we are stealing honor and glory from God. The second lesson I want to point to is a lesson from the widow. Because the Lord set the pillars and foundations of the world, he is able to guard the feet of his faithful ones. You can see that language is echoed from Samuel 2. Because the Lord set the pillars and foundations of the world, he is able to guard the feet of his faithful ones. Oftentimes in the Christian life, we cannot see the work that God is doing. And in the same situation here, as the glory of God is going into exile, we know that this is part of God's judgment on the house of Eli, on the unfaithful Israel. This is God venting his wrath on Israel. And throughout scripture, it's clear that judgment and salvation are closely associated. And as God's punishment on the house of Eli is finished, he is going to raise up his faithful priests. But before he raises up the one, he must bring down the other. And as we think of this baby who is named Ichabod, we must remember that though the Ark of the Covenant went into exile, the God of the Ark was still on his throne. His footstool may have left, but he did not move from his throne. And as we go through the hardships and trials of this world, we must not forget who reigns in the heavens. Though it's difficult, we must continue to trust that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. And as we think of that baby whose name was Ichabod, the glory has departed. We must remember also that there was another baby of great significance. Matthew tells us, that, that a virgin shall conceive and his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. And for those of you who trust in Jesus, you don't have to worry that he might ever leave you. The good shepherd will not abandon the sheep for which he died. And just like Phineas' widow, we must, we must love the God of our salvation and cling to him trusting that he will bring us through the world and into his glorious kingdom. He will hold us fast and no one can pluck us out of his hand. And may we patiently endure our time here on earth as we look forward to the promise that though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil 
You will prepare a table for me. The good shepherd will prepare a table for us. And one day soon, very soon, we will dwell with the good shepherd in the house of the Lord. Just a few summers ago, uh, my family and I escaping the Reading heat, we went over to the Humboldt coast to camp a day at the beach. And you know how when temperatures in Reading reach over 100, that the coast is a great place to be. It was great. It was foggy. It was overcast. It was cold. It was windy. And the whole day we spent playing out on the beach. And that night as, as we got back to our campsite around the campfire, we all took turns showing off our sunburns from our time at the beach. But the point is this, even on a cloudy day, the sun is shining. In the same way, we must remember that the king is on his throne in the heavens and he is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. He is faithful and he is working to bring a conclusion to all of his promises. His son completed his work on the cross and will one day return. And when he does, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And until that day, may you cling to the great and very precious promises of the Father. And when you're tempted to take his glory and honor for ourselves, may we remember Shiloh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are are so good to us. You are a God of knowledge. You are a righteous judge. You know the beginning and you know the end. And Father, we ask that you glorify yourself through us as you bring about your great and very precious promises. We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen.